welcome to episode 84 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, host of The Climate Champions. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at crevatenergyinnovations.com. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. This week, my featured guest is Jay Drake Hamilton, Senior Director of Science Policy at Fresh Energy. Jay leverages scientific analysis to advocate and drive policy development of clean energy solutions to global warming that meet the scale of the threat and maximize economic opportunities. Fresh Energy shapes and drives bold policy solutions to achieve equitable carbon-neutral economies, working toward a vision of a just, prosperous, and resilient future powered by a shared commitment to a carbon-neutral economy. They leverage data, science, and market-based solutions to help Minnesota progress toward an economy everyone can thrive in and energy availability to ensure the well-being of the entire community. Talking about the community, COVID infection rates continue to be high worldwide, and the virus continues to mutate. So please be careful. And remember, we're all in this together. While being cautious and alert, Please be supportive and kind, and take the time to thank the people that are taking personal risks to keep our world moving forward. And if you are one of those people, thank you very, very much. Welcome to The Climate Champions. I'm Lee Krivat, and I'm here with Jay Drake Hamilton, Science Policy Director at Fresh Energy. Jay, welcome to the Climate Champions. Lee Krivat, it's great to be talking with you. <laughs> you can just call me Lee. With regards to climate change, what got you motivated to do something about it? I remember the year very well. It was 1995. And at the time, I was finishing up my graduate degree at the University of Minnesota in geography, largely in climate change. And I had already started out teaching in academia. But in 1995, I was looking at the landscape very closely in this very challenging, very beautiful, but very divided state in the heartland. And I was seeing very clear signs that Minnesota was poised to begin taking clean energy actions that would be the highest lever that anyone can take to address climate change. And I immediately thought, aha. Here is the answer to how I want to spend the next 20 or 30 years of my career. I want to be helping shape climate policies for Minnesota and surrounding states and for the rest of the nation. So I knew I had to make 180 degrees shift away from academia and get myself ready to be a top-notch advocate in the nonprofit sector. Why is climate change mitigation personally important to you? What drives you? Well, I like to work on problems we can solve. So, especially now, this many years after 1995, we're in 2020, and we now know we're on the precipice of being able to solve the climate problem. For example, the electricity grid is now actively being transformed. For the first time in about 100 years, 
it is decarbonizing very rapidly. Secondly, renewable energy is more cost effective than ever. We have the opportunity to prioritize clean energy and make the world meet the goals of the Paris Agreement. And the costs of installing renewable energy, it's hit new lows. Now the investment that's being made in renewable energy, even today during the pandemic, the investment is more than three times the investment that's being made in fossil fuels. So we have also seen large segments of the investment community also shift themselves and what they want to be largely invested in is renewable energy projects. When you meet people that don't believe in climate change, how do you convince them that it's real and that we need to do something about it? Well, I always talk about our local situation and the evidence of climate changing in the local environment. And there's plenty of that in Minnesota or anywhere in the world. But I also pivot very strongly to talking about solutions. And it used to be when I was talking to audiences, for some people, I just needed to sometimes just take climate change out of the picture because you can always not consider climate change. And there are always many, especially economic benefits and other benefits to real people's real lives by addressing the amount of carbon that we not any longer put in the atmosphere. Another part of my success in talking to very large audiences in any place and highly Republican audiences or very liberal audiences is that it seems like I'm a person who is considered, after I've talked for a few minutes and given them the benefit of hearing from some of my stories of what I've seen happen, that they find me very credible and I really appreciate that. And I would say that some of that is because when I first started my job at Fresh Energy, we were a much smaller organization at that time. And we spent, and I'm not kidding you, we spent about 40% of our time working on building new relationships and taking care of those relationships and building our credibility. And I learned from being a really internally focused or academic person that suddenly I was spending a great deal of my time talking to new people. And I found out I really liked it and was very successful at it. So I think people need to feel that you're coming from or with some elements of their own background. I also found I was able to use my own personal background to talk to my more conservative audiences. And I would always introduce myself as coming from a very Republican district in New York. And I was raised by parents who are both Republicans and talked about their backgrounds, how my father had fought for the United States in a war. And I grew up down the street from West Point. So a lot of the people in my social venues and among my friends were people who had strong West Point backgrounds. And I found a lot of overlaps with many of the audiences I spoke to. They were seeing in front of them a woman who was, in some cases was a little unusual for them to hear from a woman, but they were hearing from a woman who was raised by Republicans in a very conservative area of the country, really a place that had a very strong love for America. But I was not a green bean coming in front of them. 
I was someone who had trained herself in the levers that could move to both benefit the economy and improve the environment at the same time. And when I began to tell my stories, they seemed to get more interested over time. Can you explain more about what you do and what Fresh Energy does? So what Fresh Energy is, is we are proven leaders and we use public policy and we use it to achieve change at the scale of the climate problem. So we're trying to change economics, starting with the energy sector. And together we work with a large number of collaborators. We're focused on creating a future built on an economy that is carbon-free and equitable, both of those things. So Fresh Energy works hard across the political and social spectrum to build a shared commitment to climate action. And also, we work to create a carbon-neutral economy by nurturing strong collaborative partnerships. And these partnerships are with decision makers, consumers, elected officials, labor unions, communities, and many more people. And we often work at the state legislature. We also do work at the federal Congress. And as well, we work with the regulators in my state of Minnesota, which is known as our Public Utilities Commission, because there are several ways to go about changing the rules and changing the way policy happens to the electric sector, both at regulators and at legislators. Has the pandemic changed what you and what Fresh Energy does or how you do it? Climate change, I think, is sort of similar to the coronavirus. What I'm going to say is primarily about climate change, and you'll see it refers as if I'm talking about COVID-19. Scientists have been telling us that there are huge risks out there from climate change, but by and large, society hasn't done enough about it. We are beginning to experience the really dangerous impacts of climate change, humanitarian impacts, health impacts, of course, and business and economic impacts, too. In the case of climate change, there is no likely turnaround. Climate change is just going to get worse and worse until we reduce emissions hugely and take carbon out of the atmosphere. Just like for COVID-19, we have to deal effectively with the virus. And at the same time, we need to rebuild our infrastructure, many elements of our infrastructure, not just the energy sector. And we need to rebuild it equitably, too. So with both the coronavirus and with climate change, we have a whole lot on our plates. But what I have noticed is that the development of renewable energy projects hasn't skidded to a halt. Investment in those projects continues to increase which is a factor we track in looking at whether we are on track to get to where we need to be. Can you talk about your journey? How did you get to where you are today? Well, I knew for a long time that I was headed toward academia, but I went into academia because I was interested in actually helping people solve real environmental problems. I loved academia. I found out, much to my surprise, that I was a really good teacher I loved it. I loved my students, and I loved getting evaluations from my students. What they really loved about me, it seemed, was that I was maybe singular among the very few number of professors they had had who were not ever hard to understand, that always explained clearly to them. And in fact, one of them 
they added a little insight to their evaluation. They said, J. Drake Hamilton could teach physical geography to a rock. <laughs> That's great. So then when I came to the nonprofit Fresh Energy, and I told one of my friends back in Minnesota that I was coming back to Minnesota to change the path of my work, I also said to her, well, you know, I really love to teach at GW, but I know there's plenty of colleges in Minneapolis and St. Paul, and I'm sure that I could easily teach a course now and then if I wanted to. And she said to me, Jay, what you'll find you're doing, this was when she had already seen me talking in front of the legislature. She said, Jay, you're doing the same thing now, working for the nonprofit Fresh Energy. But instead of teaching students, you're teaching legislators. And I laughed a little at that, but then I went home that night and started thinking about it. And I thought, yes, all of the things in my presentations to students, I am using those same types of examples and the same starting point with legislators as in first establishing a connection with those people even before I start talking about climate change. So I've learned a lot in my years of teaching and it makes me laugh. And you know what? I have never looked for a contract to teach at any college in Minnesota since. <laughs> I have my hands full working with legislators, etc. Awesome. Can you talk about some setbacks you've had along the way? Well, at Fresh Energy, we really consider that we're playing the long game. And that's why I spent some time discussing with you how we used to spend a large chunk of our work time building and tending to relationships with many people. And that's what we consider part of our long game. But now I've seen the work go forward. By that I mean we have been successful in getting energy and climate policies passed and signed into law in Minnesota in every single year. And this is at a time when Republicans were running the state or when a majority of Democrats were running the state. And now for many years, we have had the very much fun idea of a divided legislature. I understand we're the only state in the United States that now has a divided legislature. The Democrats run our House of Representatives and the GOP runs our Senate. Yet in every year we have moved with bipartisan support energy and climate legislation to become law. So yes, for sure we've had setbacks to pass the very first big law we passed, which was in 2007. We had to first introduce that bill six years earlier, and it took six and a half years to fight and get that passed. That certainly was a setback, but it also taught us how we gain and make progress and track it and how do you make it a little short-circuited in subsequent years to do that? Sometimes, if we're lucky. Can you talk about successes that you're proud of? Yes, I'm very proud of what we've done. So most recently, in the past five years, we've been working directly with the utility companies, who are the entities that own the coal plants that power Minnesota. Many of those coal plants are in Minnesota. Some are in surrounding states. We started that very slowly, so that's another long burn move toward a policy. But now it's just moving forward in leaps and bounds. And I'll give you two examples of that. Our largest utility in Minnesota is called Excel Energy. 
And Excel Energy took the position in May of 2019 that not only were they going to close, and they had dates set to close all of their remaining coal plants in Minnesota. And they put the icing on the cake on that in May 2019 when their CEO in front of our state regulators said, we're not only doing this in Minnesota, what we are going to do is we're going to get an 80% reduction in carbon pollution from our coal plants by 2030. And then we're going to make available to all of our customers by 2050, all of them will have 100% carbon-free electricity. And two weeks after the CEO made that commitment to Minnesota, two weeks later, he went into the national news and he said, and now we've taken what we started in Minnesota and we make the commitment to all of our customers in all of the eight states where we sell electricity. And that is the same commitment. By 2050, all of their customers will get 100% carbon-free electricity. They were the first utility in the entire United States to make that commitment. I was very proud to have it come from starting in Minnesota. But get this, here is my second story. And this became public in May of 2020, just a year later. And this time I'm talking about the second largest utility in Minnesota, which is a very different structured utility. Excel is an investor-owned utility. The second largest utility is called Great River Energy. It's known as GRE. And it is a member-owned cooperative utility. So it provides and sells power to 28 member-owned cooperatives in Minnesota. And when you look at the map of this Great River Energy utility in Minnesota, you see it covers most of the geography of Minnesota. And here is what they decided to do publicly in May of 2020. And before I say it, I'm gonna tell you this. We at Fresh Energy learned this directly from the CEO of the utility about a year before this, but they got us to commit to being silent about it. And I'll tell you in a little while why they wanted us to be silent. And we did, in fact, keep it confidential. And on the day they made this announcement, we got into their press release on this. Because what GRE had announced, they were going to leave, stop producing electricity from the largest coal-fired power plant in North Dakota. Now, why am I talking about a North Dakota coal-fired power plant? because most of those electrons come directly to the suburbs of the Twin Cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul. Now, we had been talking to Great River Energy about this coal plant that they were going to stop relying on, and it's called Coal Creek Station. It's almost exactly in the center of North Dakota. It's about 1,150 megawatts, which is huge. And when we first started talking to Great River Energy, we were forming a relationship with them. We took about four or five years to form that relationship with them. And I'll tell you how we, how we approach any business at Fresh Energy. We are always wanting to make new friends and allies. And we always start with knowing what our core values are. And we wanna sit down with that business and we wanna have a lunch or a breakfast with them and we want to find out what their core values are. Learn about that. And what we're always looking for is a business or a community where our core values and their core values agree at least on 50% of the things. So that's what we're looking for. And what we found 
is that most of the utilities we approach with this framework, we find that we agree with much more with these utilities than with 50% of our core values. Normally, it's more like 85 or 90% of our values. So that's how we know it's well worth our time to spend even more time with these relationships. So when we started talking to Great River Energy, it was discussions about core values. And in the first three years of those discussions, we always ended each discussion by bringing up a more thorny topic with them. And we said, we know that you own this very large coal-fired power plant in North Dakota. And we have to tell you that a lot of our colleagues at nonprofit organizations and a lot of your customers do not appreciate getting so much of their energy from burning coal. They're very concerned about climate change and other air pollution problems. And so we usually smile at them bigly at this time and we say, so we think you should take a hard look at what are the economics of this power plant and think about getting off the coal train as soon as possible. And you know, the first three years we talked with this utility about that, they always gave us the standard line, which was true four years ago and five years ago for Great River Energy. And that is that coal plant was probably going to be the last standing, very economic coal plant in all of the United States because it is a large scale coal plant, it is well run, and it is located on the same land as the coal mine that produces the coal that goes into this coal plant. So they don't even need a train to get the fuel to the plant. And they say, we think it will be the last coal plant that has to be retired. And they told us that same thing for three years. But then something in the last two years happened. Great River Energy was getting a lot of feedback from some of their 28 member co-ops. And those people had been looking at the economics of buying all this coal power from GRE. And one of those utilities started to come directly to the CEO and say, you know, we calculate that buying coal from you is costing our members $60 million more every year than we need to pay. In other words, we could go out on the open market and buy wind power and could save $60 million a year for our customers. What do you think about that? And that started off a whole period, I don't know how long they took, but they analyzed the costs of the Coal Creek coal plant and compared that with every other way they could provide energy to their member co-ops. And then they did one more thing before they came out with this announcement in May of 2020. The day before they made their announcement, they had an annual meeting of their 28 member co-ops and they wanted to have a vote and every of those 20 members could vote on whether or not Great River should get out of the coal business in North Dakota. And they got a unanimous vote. Wow. Yes. And that shows up in their press release too. That's exciting. But you know, the other thing that came out was that GRE was making this decision as a business decision for economic reasons. And they found that the way they could replace all of that coal, so Make a note of this. They are going lickety split, lightning fast for the utility industry. They're going to get out of this coal plant by the end of 2022. So two years from today, they will be out of North Dakota and they are going to replace all of this coal with wind contracts. 
And earlier we were talking about the one member organization that had come to the management and said, look, it seems like we're losing $60 million for our customers and they don't like it. But we know now that the cost to all of those customers at 28 member co-ops is more like probably at least costing them about $160 million every year. So switching out to wind will save all of that money. So the customers are really happy. So those are two very similar coming out of very different constructions of a utility sector who have come to the same decision, and they are both moving to zero coal. Previously, you mentioned to me that you had met Obama. Yes. That would be one of my successes. Yeah, so that was the year where I got a phone call that came into my email, and I was coming back from Duluth, Minnesota to home in St. Paul, Minnesota, and it stopped to fuel up my car. And before I got back on the highway, I thought I'd better check my messages again. And there was a message, and it was from a number I did not recognize. And the message said, President Obama is going to be announcing his clean power plan on climate change. And he's going to do it in front of a big crowd of people in the East Room of the White House. But he has specified that he wants to have a small group meeting before that with 12 people in the room. And he would like to invite you to come. So I did not know how my name had come up, but I quickly called the person back. And it turned out that he was interested in having in the room no more than 12 people for about 40 minutes to talk before he went into the East Room. And all the press, all of the international media was there too. But he wanted to have a group of 12 people who had taken leadership in their own states and made very big climate policy changes in their state. So I said, yes, of course I'll be there. But it was a little funny because they could only tell me what day it was, but not any more information. And I had something else planned for that week, but I bought a cheap ticket to fly out there at six in the morning. And I came back to St. Paul at 11 that night. But it meant that I had 40 minutes with President Obama. And you know, presidents run late all the time. He was running about half an hour late. So we all had the chance to look around this room of 12 people and find out who else we knew in the room. And the first person I saw was a person I had not yet met, but he was the CEO of Excel Energy. I saw him across the room. So I went right across the room to introduce myself. And we started talking about the climate action plan that the president would be introducing in about 40 minutes. And it was interesting because I had a half an hour to talk with the CEO of Excel Energy, and I talked to a lot of his customers before I had even met him. But it was interesting because while we were having our conversation, one of the security people from Obama's administration came up to him and took away his old badge that brought him into the White House and gave him a different badge. And after the security person left, I asked Ben Folk, who is the CEO, why he got the different badge. And he said, well, at first, I didn't have the ability to come into this room of 12 people who had taken big action on climate policy because I hadn't yet read what he was proposing. But when I let the administration know that I agreed with that policy, they allowed me into this meeting with people like you, Jack. And it was the highlight of my career, for sure. Yeah, it would certainly be one of mine, if not the highlight. Can you talk about your vision for the future? How do you see the Earth, the United States, Minnesota, 20, 30, 40 years from now with regards to climate change? 
We really need to very ambitiously ramp up and speed up clean energy deployment. It is quite doable. We have the opportunity to clean up electricity. We can do so in creating millions of well-paying jobs. But how do we ramp this up to the speed? And it's not like it's just one piece of advice that I was going to give people. But I always say, and all of my audiences have ever heard me talk about us at Fresh Energy always being laser focused on finding the highest lever we can move on climate policy and pull it hard. And so this means there's not one solution. To solve the lion's share of the climate problem, we need to focus and do this by 2035 on four items that will allow us to slash 70 to 80% of greenhouse gas emissions. The first is to clean up the electric system. The electricity represents 27% of US total greenhouse gas emissions. So that means cleaning that system to run only on carbon-free electricity will get us one quarter of the way to climate success. The second is more challenging. The second is transportation, which is the largest sector in greenhouse gas emissions in most every state and in the US as a whole. It represents 28% of all of our carbon emissions. So we need to get more people to as well as drive less to drive clean, cheaper electric vehicles of all sizes. Now, not all of the transportation sector is easy. There are parts of it like aviation, which don't have ready solutions, but electrifying transportation is an immediate right way to go. The third lever is to cut emissions from buildings, especially existing buildings, because most of them will still be around by 2050. So if you look just at commercial and residential buildings, they represent 12% of all U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. We use a lot of gas to heat our homes, especially in places like Minnesota, and in a lot more places to heat our water. We should do the bulk of these things using air source heat pumps, which are affordable and working now, and for heating our water, we should use heat pump water heaters and thus replacing all of that gas with clean electricity. The fourth and last pivot point, we can't do all of this right now. We don't know how to do it all yet in heavy industries, but we can essentially cut about half the emissions from heavy industries, which now cause 22% of greenhouse gas emissions. And we need to look carefully at what industries can be electrified. So these four levers I've talked to would add up to 70 to 80% of all the carbon emissions. So they mean that electricity, clean electricity, is really the first and most rapidly deployed linchpin to establish the economy-wide transformation. I hear a lot of people talk about the transition that electricity is making, but I think it is really much more a transformation because the story I've just laid out would be really a once-in-a-century opportunity to modernize electricity and would bring massive growth in electricity, in clean power, and it would jumpstart economy-wide decarbonization. And what I tell a lot of the students and the young people I often talk to is, you shouldn't think about climate change as just a big scary thing. 
Think of it as a huge chance to rebuild our economy. We have an unprecedented chance to build tons of generation infrastructure in clean energy and employ millions of people across the economy, jobs that will be available in places like Minnesota, because most of these jobs cannot be taken overseas. So the technology is here in the electric sector. It is cheap, and we need very consistent policy support. And I really feel that my work with Fresh Energy, I've been able to make progress with them every single year. And what I love is, even though we work publicly on this, normally the stories aren't getting out there. And when I tell people every change we've been making since 1995, they understand that if they're in the climate change movement now, just joining it, that they're adding to multiple generations of people in many businesses and many lifestyles who have been adding to this transformation starting way back 25 years ago. And we need all of them. And it's going to mean, if we're successful, that there are going to be many more jobs for young people with many different talents because we need their help to produce this equitable, low-carbon economy for all of us. People, including the president, said, well, we should aim for 100% clean electricity by 2050. And I know that Fresh Energy is already telling his office, well, we need to do the electric part of that by about 2035. And we need to get the whole thing done, the whole carbon-free economy by 2050. So is your vision that we're going to be successful? Well, I don't really know. But if I were a betting person, I would say, I think we are going to be successful because I am seeing growth in investments in clean electricity and in clean cars build at an enormous rate of pace. And I see many more people interested in being part of the set of solutions going forward. What impact does the pandemic have on the vision that you just talked about? Well, what's coming across about the pandemic is startling to a lot of people everywhere I talk to. And that is that most of the harms from the pandemic are happening to people of color and people in low-income communities everywhere in the United States. Those are people who are suffering most from the pandemic. And actually, those are exactly the same set of people who are suffering most from climate change. And if we had to take climate change off the table, if we were talking with some people who just don't want to hear the words climate change, then we can talk about air pollution because everyone I know knows people or has kids who have asthma and are very susceptible to local air pollution problems. And the more these people find out that switching away from fossil fuels to zero carbon electricity, the first thing it helps is lowers air pollution in communities of color and communities of low-income people. So in terms of building equitably solutions to climate change and solutions to the coronavirus, cutting air pollution and switching away from fossil fuels to clean energy is the very first thing we should be doing. So what is the one thing that a regular person can do to help with climate change? Well, I'm going to start again. I know I've said this before, but I'm just going to take one sentence to say it. We need to do everything we can almost at the same time. And that is hard to do. But 
The one thing that people can do is collaborate with other people and make sure your collaborations are focused on moving those big levers of change in policy. So the kinds of things that put into your spotlight elected officials who represent you and holding them accountable to take policy actions that are really going to matter very greatly. Is there anything else that you want to say? I would like to give my employer big props because when I made the decision to leave academia and go into nonprofit work, I was raised by academia that was different 25 years ago than it is today. Many academics were very skeptical of nonprofits because they'd grown up at a place where they felt they had the best jobs in the world. And in fact, some of them, my professors when I was in graduate school, when the graduate students had a meeting with the whole faculty of geography at the University of Minnesota, we had two hours with them and we said, you know, we're having a hard time getting jobs when we come out with our PhDs. What can you do to help us? And what one man after another told us was that they had four job offers when they had finished up graduate school. So they had no information to give us that would help. So what I've learned myself and what many others have learned is if you want to figure out what you're going to do for your career and you're trying to prepare yourself for that, you need to think about what difference you want to make that's good for the world study what you need to learn to attain those skills, and then always think about what is the biggest part of this work I can do and how can I prepare myself to do that. So it comes along with the idea of identifying the major levers of action to climate change or any other problem that you want to solve and always focusing on the people that can make the change you want. And on that note, I'm going to wrap this up, and I'm going to wrap it up with a wrap. From academia, you wanted to escape because environmental policy you wanted to shape. Students and legislators have a communication reliant on you because you can explain to a rock science. I would run to my mama. It would be my biggest drama. If I got to be in a room of 12 and speak energy with Obama, you were raised in a conservative joint located super close to West Point. The economic benefits, you ensure they are seen because you don't want to be thought of as another green bean. COVID and energy shouldn't be linked to politics because we need to solve it together. They're both great risks. You took the long burn with clean policy as your goal and got the Excel CEO to get rid of coal. Coal Creek electrons coming from North Dakota by Great River It was a confidential, clean, and economic secret. The information they did give her, clean energy, it is the solution, not just because of climate change, it also lowers air pollution. Thank you. (laughs) That was hilarious. Jay made me laugh talking about being able to communicate effectively with a rock, but I shouldn't have. In these divided times, with science under attack and where seemingly obvious data-backed science is met with pushback, being able to convey information in a way that people can get behind is critical. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe 
Rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. Like a number of champions I've had on the podcast, Jay left academia so that she could shape policy and make a significant difference. She has and is still going strong. Personally, I left a job where I actually got paid to help the fight. But you don't have to make such a dramatic choice to enact change. Convince your company to make a commitment to cleaner energy or to migrate toward electric vehicles. And like Jay does and suggested to you, educate other people, speak up, and join the fight to mitigate climate change. 